This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone. I am Daniel Paris. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Professor Jeffrey Brooks. Uh, Jeffrey Brooks, excuse me, he writes lots of books. Uh, professor Jeffrey Brooks, he's a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University, and he's the author of the recently published The Firebird and the Fox, Russian Culture Under Czars and Bolsheviks. That came out from uh, Cambridge two years ago. Professor Brooks, Brooks, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Dan, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to sharing my pleasure in the things that I've studied and that I write about in the book, my take on what I call a century of genius. And it is indeed a century of genius. And and although most of my uh, listeners are familiar that I was a Soviet studies Russian specialist as a background, uh, many other listeners won't. And their exposure to Russian literature will be the classics that they covered in a uh, international literature course in college, or maybe maybe even read on their own the the great uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, and and perhaps a little bit more. Uh, often in a Victorian English translation by Constance Garnett. And, and that may be where their exposure to Russian culture, uh, a few cliches about War and Peace or the brothers uh, Karamazov, may be where their exposure ends. And I think what, what Firebird and the Fox does is explain there's a whole lot more to uh, Russian literary and artistic culture, particularly in this very intense period, the back half of the 19th century and early 20th century, and you really bring that alive in your book. This seems to me, and I kind of know your background, a bit of a a life's work, a summa. Do you want to explain how the book uh, came came about? Well, it it is a summa, and I've, I've written about different aspects of Russian culture, but always about things that I really love. And in this book, I bring together all these uh, characters that you've heard about or read some of, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Stravinsky, Kandinsky, Malevich, Chagall, Yagilev in Ballet Russe, all of these together so that one can see the whole picture. I, I... personally just came on this Russian stuff by accident as a young guy during the Cold War, and I thought it would be cool to study this weird country, and the life goes by. 
most of one generation after you, I did the same thing. I entered undergraduate institution and thought that it would be cool to understand the other guy. And so I took Russian language 8 a.m. five days a week, little knowing that very few freshmen took Russian language five days a week at 8 a.m. So I had a, a small class, uh, basically the teacher to my uh, to myself, and down I went the rabbit hole, as uh, as did you. But what I think that you know, one of the results, the benefits of going down the rabbit hole, as we know, as we did, is that the, uh, again, there's so much more than just Tolstoy and, and Dostoevsky. They interact, and I think this is really one of the important points, points of your book, is that they were interacted with and were products of a complicated culture, uh, middle-brow culture, lower-brow culture, high-brow culture. Tolstoy was of a, a noble family and very high-brow, but engaged the entire cultural value chain up and down, as did certainly uh, many of the others. You want to talk a little bit about you know, what the cultural complex was in the middle of the 19th century when these uh, authors are writing, and that they're not just exceptions. They are part of a very complex and dynamic situation. Well, I will, will say that the whole study of Russian um, literature, culture, the arts has been transformed over the and the translations that were uh, not as effectual as uh, as close to the original as they are now have have um, changed. <clears throat> I I use the um, the the middle of the nineteenth century is amazing because. Millions and millions of people, 40 million people, are ensurfed. They're like slaves, and they're emancipated. But all over the society, it's a moment of technological change, social change, political disruption. And I like to see it as a moment when large numbers of people are gaining agency. They're becoming consumers of culture. They're asking questions. They're thinking new thoughts. And I use the metaphor cultural ecosystem. And if you think of an ecosystem, uh, you know that a lot of change takes place basically at your feet, at the lowest level, as well as the other levels. It's probably worth noting for our audience that, again, uh, a Russian uh, serfdom ends in the 1860s, right, as the United States is uh, ending slavery as well. These two processes happen uh, in parallel, very separate but happen in parallel. And so indeed, it's kind of off to the races for a whole a whole new epoch in, in both societies. Of course, there's a huge difference. 1861, three years before the end of the, the emancipation of the slaves. And, and these people were indistinguishable from the people who were free. And money became important, which doesn't recognize social class. So there were all sorts of remarkable things happening. And that explains, because my question in writing the book was, how did this happen? Where did all this excitement come from and this originality? And they were able to fall back on traditions, stories of long duration, character characters who figure in different kind of stories. So it's a remarkable moment. And, and a couple of those stories are reflected in the title of your book, uh, The Firebird and the Fox. The Firebird has a particularly strong uh, resonance within Russian culture. You titled the book that way. That is also kind of an homage or response to a prior book on Russian culture, which you may want to mention. But in addition to Billington, a new version, uh, discuss why why you were positing the, the Firebird is kind of, and it's a central theme that runs through your book. 
the Firebird stands for art, and it's it's associated with the the most popular, long-lasting Russian stories. Stravinsky's ballet, The Firebird, brings together two stories. One is the folktale of The Firebird, in which a young guy has to go and fetch a firebird. The firebird's not alive, uh, is alive, powerful, but not a person. And uh, another story in which another young guy has to catch a firebird, but he has a magic helper called the Little Humpback Horse. And both those stories come on stream. So the firebird is a symbol, but it is linked with another figure who is a real living powerful figure, and that's the fool. Why didn't I put a fool on my cover? Because fools don't present that well. (laughs) But the Firebird, and if I say a moment about the cover, if you look at the book online, you'll see there's a beautiful blue Firebird luminescent representing creativity, power, and in the ballet, the Firebird, the Firebird, whom you think the hero will marry, represents art. And she wins over demons and makes them dance themselves to death in the finale of the ballet, which is quite famous from 1910. And so the fool is the one who goes to catch the firebird. And firebird is almost like the beans in Jack and the Beanstalk. You get your firebird and then your wonderful adventures begin. And even though you're foolish, your innocence and clarity of moral purpose will win out in the end and you become a czar or something uh, a leader through that so the point is a a kind of a high form of art a ballet draws very very strongly on the russian folk tradition where uh the firebird is is present and with both a new culture of literacy and printing uh you may want to explain loop key a little bit that these postcards or woodblocks which uh, are a really important part of russian culture explode in the 19th century as, as literacy expands. And so the firebird is, is a, a you know, significant part of, of Russian culture, as is the fox. And, and maybe a lot of uh, listeners familiar with the challenges of, of Russian history over the last 150 years will uh, uh, identify with the fox because uh, that's you know, a, a different end of the equation. Well, the fox is a wonderful figure in Russian culture and the subject of another ballet by Stravinsky, which is little known and not performed. And if you look at the cover of my book, you will see a wonderful fox, a female figure. of The fox in Russian is a vixen. She, in the most famous folktale, she is running off with a screaming rooster under her arm. And the rooster has been bragging about all his wives. And he's headed for dinner, her dinner. And she's to ta- in the folktale, she takes him into her burrow. And that's the end. She eats him up or gives him to her kids. But Stravinsky <laughs> was a male chauvinist. So he changed the ending of the folktale that he used and has the buddies of the fox of the rooster rescue the rooster and strangle the fox lady to death is it a popular ballet not really but but it's it's sexy and the the costumes and designs for it are available to look at and uh, 
it's a it's a very interesting ballet. So again, high art and low, and dark in the way that unfortunately Russian culture is does dark really really well. Just a, a word of uh, again, we mentioned constant. Constance Garnett, which is how uh, college undergraduates get to know uh, the Russian classics. By the way, there are recent translations over the last decade or two that are much, much better. For those of you who struggled through Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, uh, there are much, much better translations available. And in the same way, your, your book also follows up a book that many undergraduates read about Russian culture, uh, James Billington, The Icon and the Axe. A difficult book to read, uh, a long book, uh, but a book that that uh, many undergraduates had to slog through. How, how do you characterize the different what you're doing? That was written forty, maybe even fifty years ago. It was in six, eighteen, uh, nineteen sixty six, published fifty five years ago. This isn't an updating, but it is. A, it's a different approach to Russian culture. I, I think even a, a, a nicer one to Russian culture. Well, I'll tell you, I just I just wrote an essay about Billington and another figure, Camilla Gray, who was also very popular at that time for publishing a remarkable book about Russian modern art. The interesting thing about Billington's Icon and the Axe, which has a lot of interesting information in it, is the storyline is very simple. <laughs> They, the Russians, are making one tragic mistake after another as they develop through history, whereas we, the West in the the image of the Cold War, are not making those mistakes. And they, those foolish Russians, don't see their error. And it's repeated again and again throughout the book. Now, is this a lesson for us today? Not exactly, because our society doesn't look quite so sweet as it did at the peak of the Cold War in 66. Camellia Gray was another uh, Cold War classic. So my, my book is different because I'm not trying to show that the Russians are making these mistakes. I'm looking at the culture as a living uh, culture in which the point at which Russia became part of world civilization in a very dynamic way. So this is the point, breakout period for Russian culture. Did it continue after that? We can discuss that if there's, there's a question. But it ends with the death of uh, Stalin. So my book is different, and he wasn't interested. And you mentioned Luke Key. Luke, he wasn't interested in pop culture, although he was interested in religious tradition, which he saw as mostly bad because Russia was cutting itself off with its Muscovite religious Masonic, um, messianic uh, ideology. So in the 1960s, the height of Western self-confidence reflected in, in uh, academic work. Uh, times have changed. Maybe uh, we're not quite as cocky as we used to be. One of the points that you make is that in the 1960s and in most other periods, these elements of culture would be siloed. Music, uh, person who studies music, studies music. Person who studies high literature, studies high literature. Person who studies loop key, studies loop key. And, and, and they, the two shall not meet, or the three or the four or the five shall not meet. You, you really emphasize um, uh, Russian culture 
as reflecting all of these trends and activities in a way that I, I think is very refreshing. These people all knew each other. They all hung out together uh, and they they influence each other. I don't know if you have any stories, cross stories. Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and the, the people involved in that are a perfect example, but there are others as well where these individuals are feeding off each other in a way that in a salon, not a Western salon, it's a Russian salon, but uh, in, in a way that maybe we're not uh, as, as familiar with in a, in a siloed world. Well, I would make two points. Now the world isn't quite so siloed because uh, the, the, the woman who is the conductor of the Baltimore's Symphony Orchestra, who teaches, I can't remember her name offhand, teaches a class in conducting, invited me to lecture her graduate students about the context for Russian music as a historian. Marion Alsop? Yes. I get. I want credit, folks. I did not look that up on my phone. I did. It took, take me, it took me a moment. I had to think about it. But Good for you. There you go. Uh, bravo. Boy, I'm, I'm feeling better already. So there's a little bit of, I'm a, trained as a Russian historian, but there's Marion Olsop, I can mention, drop the name. Um, that's, that's encouraging, but particularly in, uh, I would say, in academia, there's still a siloed training approach. Absolutely. And, your, and, and your book, I think for people who want to make another pass at, and you refer over and over again to this, is the genius of Russian culture, the intensity I think even uh, occasional visitors to Russian culture say, boy, these people are intense, and there's a, but there's a really high quality. You don't have to listen to more than a little bit of Tchaikovsky to feel the passion and the intensity. And you read Dostoevsky, and it's, it's, it's right there. Even if you're reading the Victorian version, she can't paper over the intensity of, of the Russian experience through the eyes of Dostoevsky. So... Uh, but bringing those all together is, I think, one of the virtues uh, of, of this book. And it, it really comes together even in the early 20th century with uh, Ballet Russe and Diaghilev and all of the artists involved. I don't know if you want to tell some of the stories from that, because I think that's a really, uh, those, uh, a really uh, a fruitful period of Russian genius, cultural genius. Well, I think it is a very fruitful period. I would just go one back to Constance Garnett and say that a lot of things are missed in those early translations, and some of them are still missed. For example, Tolstoy, War and Peace. Tolstoy becomes so famous, but he he talks with lots of people. Even you mentioned the Lubok. The Lubok is a popular print, began to come on stream in a in a new way in the early 19th century, included folk tales and other things, but very Russian, Russian themes. And the folk tale, Ivan the Fool, the, Ivan the Fool, the Firebird and the Fox, um, no, Ivan um, the Firebird and the Gray Wolf. That was the famous story. Well, Tolstoy, in, in interviewed uh, some of the, he interviewed some of these people he even rewrote some of the popular stories that went along with those prints this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
And so, and so again, there's more to Tolstoy than just Anna Karenina and War and Peace. And one of the things that uh, you do a, a nice job is you cover the major players, but you talk a lot about their minor works, which probably deserve more attention than Penguin classics can give them, and therefore, uh, you know, deserve a greater uh, role in understanding the context of Russian culture these minor works and how they in particular drew upon um, existing culture, folklore, peasant tales, peasant experiences. All right. I, I would say that I do bring in the great works and give a new look at them. For, for example, how many people laughed their way through War and Peace? <laughs> Not in the Constance Garnett translation. Pavar and Volkonsky have a much better translation of that. But I found the whole thing was embedded with humor, and the humor was very powerful in adding to the meaning of the story. And one popular uh, caricaturist who read, and there was a comic version of War and Peace that it came, came out as it came out, said, looking at some scenes in War and Peace, heck, if this is possible, anything is possible, which is a very subversive idea. So I'm hoping that reading the book gives a deeper meaning. For example, in the brothers Karamazov, there's the saintly Alyosha, the saintly youngest brother, just as in the stories of uh, folktales, the younger brother is the one. And without understanding the role of the fool, and there's a secular fool and a holy fool, you can't really understand the Brothers Karamazov, or you can understand it. You can read it as a weird and overly long murder mystery, but you don't get the full moral whack of it, so to speak. Or take Stravinsky's Firebird Ballet. It begins with the firebird dancing around the hero, who doesn't look like a fool, because fools don't sell well. And... Uh, you think they're going to get married, but she represents art. And in the end, as I mentioned, she liberates the hero who's helpless before evil without the power of art. So I, I add to that. Or take a pic. Kandinsky did a famous image, a, a painting of the firebird. But it has baffled art historians. Where the heck is the firebird in this picture? And why is it called the firebird? It's called the firebird because the firebird is taken not from the folktale, but from the children's story, The Little Humpback Horse. And the images embedded in that, in that story, such as a lady sitting on a blanket on what looks like a beach, she's going to be kidnapped by the hero soon after, they come from the popular story, The Little Humpback Horse. So you miss the point of Kandinsky's uh, wonderful picture if you don't know the, the background. And you make the point moving on to the 20th century, and maybe we'll circle back to sure. the revolutionary period and the intensity and the, the irony, uh, ironic fact that the Ballet Russe never performed in Russia. It was, it was too complicated for Russia. But you do move and you make a fascinating point that in the Soviet period, the soft underbelly to appreciate the cultural complexity that uh, was there was through, viewed through children's literature. The, the regime was too on top of the adult literature, but that it, the cultural traditions lived on, including humor, including 
sort of forms of resistance, light forms of resistance through children's literature. I thought that was really a fascinating section. You want to describe that a little bit? Yes, I can give you a couple of examples. Well, of course, the the danger of losing your life and people had to make do with the tough times they lived in and very dangerous. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of the power of children's literature to understand some great works related to them. One of my favorite stories is a story from 1923 called The Monster Cockroach. A cockroach arrives, all the animals that are happy bow down before the cockroach. They're frightened of this small cockroach. And the cover, by a very interesting artist, shows hippos bowing down to the cockroach, showing their behinds. Yes, that image is in the book. In the book. And it's a, there are a lot of images. And uh, it dates from 1923. Run the clock along. And 20 years later, in 1933, a famous poet, Osip Mandelstam, a Jewish uh, poet, I might say, uh, <clears throat> wrote a poem called Goretz, the Mountaineer, about Stalin. And in that poem, which cost him his life, because someone heard him repeat it and then repeated it to the police, they, in that poem, he refers to the cockroaches, the cockroach whiskers or mustache. And he also uses the, the phrase, th- the bug's thin-necked uh, <clears throat> followers. What he does is he references this children's story. So what happens over time? Stalin, who had all the power in his hands, is trying to create his image. But Mandelstam, who lost his life for this poem, stuck him with this image of cockroach mustache, cockroach whiskers. Tarakan, tarakan, tarakanshina. That's exactly right. Boy, your Russian is good. And I'll give you another example. Let's see. I have it, a note here. Okay. While I'm looking for the example, I just will mention there, this book uh, has uh, dozens upon dozens of beautiful color plates. It's not a coffee table book, but in the middle it has dozens of uh, coffee table uh, of uh, color plates. And I can tell you that uh, university presses like Cambridge don't like to print books with high quality uh, color plates. So you, you must have done quite a job persuading them uh, to do it because it really adds lots of loop key, uh, these wood prints. And, and lots of other images highlighting the the cultural context that is uh, the the popular cultural context, the the influences from above and below, uh, and it really adds a lot of material, a, a lot of uh, quality to the to the work. So, congratulations on whatever you said to Cambridge. Well, I don't know what I said because remarkably they sold it and are still selling the hardback at, at an incredible price for Cambridge, but that's what they decided. Well, I would give you a second children's story. It's called The Story About a Silly Mouse by Marshak, who is a famous poet. And this leads to Shostakovich. So the story comes out in 1925. A little mouse doesn't like The lullabies her mom sings. The mom asks a bunch of animals. They all sing. Finally, she asks a cat. And lo and behold, 
The mom comes to check up. How did the baby sitting going? No baby mouse. <laughs> the baby. So it's like a good night moon in which the little rabbit is eaten by an ogre <laughs> at the end. For Russian educated Russians, it encapsulates the dangers of life. You don't know what will happen. So, okay, so, and it's uh, beautifully uh, illustrated by Lebedev, Lebedev a uh, famous artist. Come Shostakovich, 1936, he's criticized for his ballet, Lady Macbeth of Matinsk, very sexy ballet. And uh, it's uh, he's criticized for having this sort of the... I would say erotic scenes sounds like pigs and and ducks making sound, animal sounds. So what does he do? 1936, after he's criticized, he's frightened. No one will, people cross the street so as not to have to say hello to him. He manages to get through alive and in 19, by make, writing movie music. And in 1940, he and a friend make a cartoon called The Silly Mouse. And what sounds do they put in there? They put in there, written right on the score, quack like a duck, squeal like a pig. So he had his laugh, even though it's a Stalinist version of the cartoon where the little mouse is saved, not eaten by a KGB and NKV dog who's fallen asleep at the worst moment. So anyway, very funny, but it explains to you the question, did Shostakovich really want to shove it to the Stalinist regime or was he just always kissing up? It answers the question. He wanted to shove it to them when he could and he felt he could get away with it. I've often felt, and I think this is not an original comment, that the the genius of Russian culture, which you reference, uh, the intensity of feeling is is unfortunately a product, and, and we can this is a sidebar argument, but a product of the political intensity, the economic intensity. It's a it's a very difficult place, and uh, has been for a long time. And that the difficult nature of that place produces extreme outcomes. And some of them very, very bad. But among those extreme outcomes are works of, of creative genius that are a product of how difficult it is. The famous story of which there are so many, but one of the famous stories, which is even well known in the West, is Dostoevsky gets caught up in the revolutionary travails and is threatened with uh, execution and sent to Siberia and so forth and threatened with execution there. And, and at last minute, there's a reprieve. But the assumption is tremendous psychological damage and intensity done. And, and, and he, he writes very intense psychological works thereafter. And it, to some extent, all of, uh, or many, not all, but many of Russia's highest works of art come from some, some sort of scarred background. Would you agree with that? Or is that, is that too stereotypical? Uh, I don't fully agree. Tragedy and suffering does not make great art. It's just tragedy and suffering. I think it's the inspiration. And in the case of Dostoevsky, there's some new work out on Dostoevsky emphasizing that even before he was in political danger, he wanted to become a great writer. He was a screwy guy. He was a very screwy man, but he wanted to be a great writer. And he wrote uh, a long story called The Double before he had any political problems which, in fact, invents the 
psychological novel. True, the experiences marked him and so forth, but what even more marks and goes straight through the ballet russe is the emphasis on the free professions of which culture was such a big part. So Jagalov and his uh, friends and buddies who wanted to make ballet, and that was the most important thing for them. And they took money where they could get it. And who wanted to pay for ballet abroad? Nicholas II and his regime, because they needed money from the French and the British. And who was going to give money to them if the whole thing looked like it was going to go bunk? So to demonstrate the power of Russian culture was politically very important. So to get back to the problem of suffering, so the idea of getting to do your art no matter what, even if it's tough, was a dominant idea and into the Soviet period as well. People wanted to do their thing and they made the compromises in many cases that they had to. Sure, some people wrote brilliantly about the gulag and so so forth, but my point in the book is to point up what I see as the life-giving power that's also embedded in that culture and the joy of it, which you can find. Does that make mean every Russian is infused with sweetness and light? Not at all. But uh, it's uh, the culture has that embedded in it, if you're willing to look for it. And I'm gra- glad to be corrected, because your book is kind of more optimistic and ends more optimistically than most people who have spent a lifetime, as you have, studying Russia and the Soviet Union. Again, this is a sumo work. How do you want people to understand your understanding of the end of, uh, of the book, how you summarize it better, better in your words than mine? Well, great uh, cultures and major civilizations are complex. So you can find different messages in them. And I wanted to show that it is not a one-dimensional culture. And the things I brought out, just to give a couple of, of examples, we think of Chekhov as a moral writer, but Chekhov in the beginning wrote some pretty nasty caricatures when he was trying to make a living as a writer, not as a doctor. He said writing was his mistress, doctoring was his wife. So, and, um, and if you go to, into the Soviet period, Platonov, who was one of the most famous writers, one of the few Soviet writers who was of proletarian origins, what were among his very last works is a collection of folk tales in which he seizes the podium, so to speak, to say, I am talking about the national tradition. And what are those folk tales about? Goodness. And in one of them, the hero survives he lets loose a demon and has to follow his wife. And to win back his wife, he has to uh, answer some impossible questions. But in the end, he does because people he, he and creatures he's helped out of kindness help him. 
So it's a it's an incredibly moving statement uh, to the end. So I I think there's there's a lot of that in in uh, Russian culture, and I've tried to bring that out. And the same with censorship. Censorship isn't positive; it's negative. But the censors are no never as smart as the writers and and cultural creators they come up against. So there's a lot of room to dodge and finesse. And ultimately, humanity to emerge. You know, uh, with in a very difficult environment, humanity comes to the fore. The book is uh, the Firebird and the Fox: Russian Culture Under Czars and Bolsheviks. Uh, Professor Jeffrey Brooks, uh, thank you so much for. Having written this, and my warm thanks to you for giving me the chance to talk about these things that I love and share them with your wonderful audience of uh, listeners around the country and probably some outside the country as well. Indeed. Thank you again for being on the show.